All right. Are we recording, Josh? All right. Uh, so we are in the middle of a sermon series, and the series is engaging uh, the relationship between morality and the law. Like, how do we understand our moral compass and its relationship to, like, policy, to, like, how, how, a, how a nation should be run? And I'm going to be honest, my reason for having this sermon series is very different from a lot of other Christians. I'm going to say things I'm guessing that not all of you are going to agree with. I, in fact, I'm sure of it. And just know that if you disagree with me, you're in really good company. <laughs> There's lots of really wonderful, smart, holy, God-fearing people that disagree with me. So you're on good footing, right? I intend not to say the last word about any of the subjects at all. Like, I, I, how could I possibly... Uh, what I want is, and what I hope, is that this allows us to engage important discussions, important topics, that this become a conversation starter, where we can talk and ask questions, that this is not the end, but, uh, but a beginning. Um, so I, I started thinking about this sermon series because I have a growing concern that many, many, many Christians in the United States want to make America Christian via public policy and the law. That is, we're going to take our faith commitments, our moral compass, and we're going to enforce it onto others, which I would call an abuse of Christian power. Like, I don't think that's a good thing. And I think historically, when any religious group tries to implement its particular moral compass into the law, it goes ugly, right? Uh, in fiction, this looks something like Gilead from Handmaid's Tale. Uh, in the real world, it looks something like the Taliban forcing Sharia law onto everyone, their particular interpretation of Sharia law onto everyone, and you see how that goes. Or you might think about the Christian past when the Pope and the King were one and the same person, and that was enforced onto everyone, regardless, right? But as we know, you can't change hearts through policy or the law. You can't make someone be faithful to God through public policy or the law. It's not how it works. And so I think we have to challenge Christians and ourselves to be really careful with the power that we have, to be really thoughtful and cautious with the amount of power that we have, that we don't enforce it and impose it onto others, that the power we have is to empower. It's to be a voice for the voiceless. It's to be with our attention to the marginalized. It's not to impose it onto others. And so I, I want to challenge us to that. There are many Christians who feel persecuted in the U.S., and I honestly, I don't get it. I can't relate. I think Christians are the single most powerful group in this country. And again, I mentioned this last Sunday. How many state legislators, how many Congress people in Washington, House of Representatives, senators, would identify as Christian? Mormon, Catholic, a ton, most. How many would say they're Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim? Very few, if any, in Idaho. How many atheists? Almost none, maybe a handful. Christians are the dominant group that have political power in the city, in the state, and in the country. So we have to be really thoughtful about how that power gets exercised over other people. So that's... That was sort of the impetus for the sermon series, is to be thoughtful about this and be cautious, because I think what I hear from prominent Christian voices is, 
We've got to like win back America, make it Christian, and impose that into the law. Okay, so I'm going to do a brief review. We okay with that? I'm going to go a little bit quick. If you get lost at all, uh, last week's sermons podcasted and I do it a little bit slower, but I want to at least make sure we're on the same page. So this is my perspective. I don't, I don't expect you to agree with me. All I'm asking is you consider it. Just consider what I'm saying. Like, hmm, I'll think about it, right? I could be wrong. So I made a distinction between thin morality and thick morality. Thin morality is like a thin line, like these core moral principles that can get broad consensus, right? I'm going to put it up here, Josh, right? Thin morality, a set of norms that can achieve broad consensus across a wide variety of cultures, political views, religious communities. There are many ways to justify thin moral norms. For instance, a norm against murder can be justified using the Ten Commandments, the New Testament, the Quran, rational, atheistic concerns related to safety and public structure. The fact that thin moral norms can be justified in many ways often gives them a broad sort of consensus, right? So when I say thin morality, I think of it like not, maybe not universal, but almost universal, broad consensus. It creates the foundation, what I would call for the law. Thin morality needs to make its way into the law. I'm okay with that. Because the goals of thin morality in the next slide, right, the goals of thin morality are things like Provide safety, stability, right? Uh, protect basic freedoms and human rights, right? Things that not just Christians care about, not just Buddhists care about, not just atheists. We all care about them. We all want to have a certain amount of autonomy, human rights that are protected. We don't want people to be able to come and just take our stuff, our property, take our lives. So thin morality, broad consensus, I'm cool with us generating laws in light of that because they're not specifically Muslim. They're not specifically Republican or Democrat or Christian. They're things that we can justify in many ways from many different angles and perspectives. Some examples might be things like don't murder, don't steal, treat people as you want to be treated, moral, foundational, core, universal pieces. I contrasted that with thick morality. Thick morality or thick moral norms, that's what we build on top of the thin stuff. We create these various moral architectures and skylines that are very unique, right? So my thick morality is not going to be the same as yours, even though we're both Christian, right? I'm gonna, I'm, like, I've already mentioned certain things, right? Like, I feel committed to Christian nonviolence, but not every Christian is, right? So there's a sense in which we're building on top of those thin moral norms uh, a thick, very specific sort of moral worldview, Okay? These norms do not gain broad consensus because they're justified in very specific ways, specific communities, specific religions, right? Specific worldviews. Goals of thick morality. Thick morality tends to be about political, religious, cultural identity, right? So you think about like the Old Testament law, and it's got over 600 of these things, and the idea is like, this is how Israel's going to define itself. Follow these laws so that people will know you're the people of Yahweh, you're not the people of Pharaoh. You're not the people of Babylon, right? It's about being faithful to God in very specific ways, and that's your identity. That's how we know who you are. That's the Hebrews' thick morality, right? Some of the Old Testament laws, I would say, are like, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, like part of that thin. But much of it is very thick, Right? Some of the examples, uh, you shall have no other gods besides Yahweh. This comes from the Ten Commandments. 
This is very specific, very thick. This applies to Christians, to Hebrews, to those who think Yahweh is actually God, right? But that's not going to get consensus from an atheist. That's not going to get consensus from other. It's very specific to a Judeo-Christian worldview, right? Or you shall not work on the Sabbath. Very, very thick, very specific. We do it because God rested on the seventh day of creation. Well, that comes from a very specific religious worldview where the Bible has authority and where we're going to model God and follow God's commands about the Sabbath. But you're not going to get consensus from a Muslim on this issue or a Buddhist or an atheist, right? It's not going to get broad consensus the way you shall not murder gets broad consensus. So you have thin moral norms and you have thick moral norms. Both are important, right? I'm committed to thin morality and I'm committed to my thick morality. The difference is, I think thin morality is okay for the law. I'm really suspicious when a, any group tries to take its thick morality, its very specific religious, political, or cultural morality, and we're going to impose it onto others, outside groups. Suddenly I'm nervous. That feels like we're, we're treading into abusive Christian power kinds of territory. Again, you might not agree with where I'm at, but hopefully the, my, my, all I hope at this point is that it's clear and that you're thinking, like, I'll think about that. Thin morality, yes to the law, for, for me at least. Thick morality, I, I don't know about that. And part of it is, I don't want any other religious or political group to impose its thick morality onto me or to my family, to force me to follow their specific way of doing things, right? So if I don't feel comfortable with other groups doing it, Christians who have the most power in this country should really be thoughtful about not doing it. All right. So that brings us to the topic at hand, which is, I would argue, maybe one of the most difficult moral issues we face, the, the issue of abortion. And we talk about it because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and in particular, we're in our location, right, the pending Idaho abortion ban that's going to get triggered, right? These are important issues. And if we can't talk about them in the church, where can we talk about them, right? Certainly not over Thanksgiving dinner. Right? It's hard with family. It's hard with colleagues. It feels fraught with landmines, uh, potentially ending relationships, getting into fights, arguments. But we have to lean in and engage. So that's, that's what we're doing. That's why we're doing it. Right? And I think this concept of trying to figure out what's the relationship between Christian morality and the law is, is a, as good a time as any to tackle it. Here are my caveats. One, I'm a man. I'm probably not the best person to be talking about this. I'm going to be really just upfront with you. I don't know what it's like to experience current events from a woman's perspective. I have no idea. And as much as I can try, I am so limited. So I apologize in advance for my limited nature to talk about these things in a very robust way. I just can't. I'm limited. I just recognize it. So there's going to be so many things that I say that I wouldn't say if I were a woman. And I know that that's true. I recognize it. Two, um, I'm not here to get the last word. We're here to engage in hard conversations together. I welcome follow-up. I welcome, let's go to coffee and talk more about it. Let, like, let's do that, right? Uh, I even talked with Jen before service and we might have something after church or some kind of a, like a, a discussion forum about these very issues so that we can keep the conversations going. 
because they're, they're difficult. Another caveat. <clears throat> Anytime we treat difficult issues like they're issues, like they're concepts, like they're abstract categories, it does such harm to people's lived experience because it's dehumanizing, right? Like me talking about abortion is not the same as a woman having to face the decision. Like one is like existential, lived experience, fraught with emotion. And I'm doing it in this like very neutralized space where we're going to talk about it like an, like an, like an issue. My thoughts, our discussion, the categories we label, just let me say, are not as important as those of you who have experience with this issue. Your experience matters more. The anxiety, the pain that you, maybe you have experienced or someone you care and love has experienced, what I'm going to say doesn't even compare. So I, want, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know how to do it well, but I want to honor that. I, wanna, I just want to say up front that I honor those that have had those experiences. This is a place for me where I want no one to feel judgment. I don't want anyone to feel judged by what I'm going to say. That's not the goal. I'm just trying to pray through, think through, talk through, engage the issue. Okay. So I'm going to start uh, by talking about um, the abortion ban in terms of morality, like, in the, like Joe Bankert's perspective, and then I want to talk about the law. So from a moral perspective as a Christian, here's how I always start. If this helps you at all, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Every issue, I don't care what the issue, I as a Christian want to come at it and say, what does, the pers what does this look like from those that have the least amount of power, the least amount of voice, the most vulnerable, the most marginalized? That's the perspective I would argue Christians should inhabit. That's where we embody. Whether we're talking about issues at the border, whether we're talking about issues of health care, whether we're talking, whatever it is, what does this look like from those that are hurting the most, have the least voice, the least power, right? The most marginalized. Uh, it seems to me that one way this plays a role in the upcoming abortion ban is it's going to impact, like, so for instance, um, for people that have means, you just cross state lines. You can fly somewhere. You can take some days off of work. If you had to do something, you could engage it. But that's not true if you're 13. That's not true if you're poor. That's not true if you took two days off work, you're going to get fired. That's not true. So this impacts people who have very limited means, limited access, right? Limited support. It's going gonna, it's gonna to affect them way worse than many others. So that has to matter. Like, we have to consider that. But here, here's another difficult thing, and I know that this will be difficult. Well, I, I don't think we're going to agree on this. But it also means, as Christians, we have to really, really care about the fetus that is voiceless and helpless and powerless. That that also plays a significant role in Christians, right? This is what makes the issue so complicated and so difficult and so messy, is that that has to matter, right? That the fetus is human. It has human DNA. It's alive, it's growing and developing, it's taking in resources and growing. So it's human, it's alive, it's growing. That has to matter morally, that has to factor in, right? How do you balance those two things out? Like how do you weigh 
the importance and the significance of the woman with that of the fetus, I'm not sure I'm equipped. In fact, <laughs> I know I'm not equipped. I'm totally ill-equipped to figure that out. So for me, I tend to err on the side of protecting the fetus. Like morally speaking, I think that's what we ought to do. And I'm saying that knowing I'm saying it as a man and it costs me nothing. Such a, such a shallow words, when I, even when I hear it come out of my mouth, right? I at least think we should consider that deeply. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think that means. If my daughter comes to me and, and is pregnant and doesn't know what to do, I think what I would want her to consider first is, are you healthy enough? Are you strong enough? Can we, can we, can we give this up for adoption? Can this become a gift to some other family who can't have children? Right? That would be my first thought, my first concern. Can we do that? Knowing that there are so many women in so many situations that I have no idea with health, with lack of support, with, right? So I, don't, I can't speak to every situation, nor would I want to. And this is why I have no judgment. And I would want no one in here to feel any judgment if they've made a different choice. Right? I, I only can think of it like what would happen if... If my, if my daughter or if a parishioner, like what would I say? Morally, I would say as a Christian, I would say, let's consider this. Is there a way to make this work? Is there a way to protect that fetus? Okay, that's hard to say. It's hard to look into a sea of faces and say that. Because I know that we don't all agree, all agree. And that's okay, I hope. And I'm not a female. And I don't know what it's like. And it costs me so little. Feel free to disagree with me. Okay. So let me talk about the law briefly. Given how complex this issue is, given that women find themselves in so many different circumstances, I don't feel comfortable that any law, any abortion ban could possibly honor all of that complexity. I don't think it could possibly do it. Think about all the unique situations that a pregnant woman finds herself in. And because of that, I don't feel comfortable taking my particular Christian framework and imposing it onto any woman who thinks, feels, and sees the world differently. I don't know how we can do that through the law. It seems to me that given all of the complexity that women face and suffer from and experience, that there would have to be freedom given to women to figure out how best to handle their situation. So I would say one thing about like how I would engage my daughter or parishioner, morally speaking, I would say something very different the moment we're going to try to take that and impose it in the law that to me feels like an abuse of Christian power. It feels like it's motivated from a very specific religious worldview that not everyone holds. But I do understand where it comes from, and here's where the difficulty lies. So let me try to lay it out um, this way. Uh, One way to think about the concept of abortion is to say it's part of religious thick morality. It's part of Christians seeing things a particular way, or Mormons or Catholics seeing things a very particular way from their religious context, which makes it part of thick morality, which I would say should not be in the law. 
right? Ah, but some of you are in the audience, some of you are here and you're saying, wait a second though, but isn't protecting innocent human life part of thin morality? Isn't stopping the, the destruction or killing of innocent life, shouldn't that be part of, and if it's part of thin morality, Joe, you said it's okay for it to be in the law. Do you see the conflict? It's so complicated. It's such, it's so fraught with difficulty. Okay. Even, even if you're Christian, it's really difficult. So we're going to look at it. Okay, so the scripture from Jeremiah. These are the scriptures. Jeremiah Psalms, they get used most frequently in these t discussions. And the scripture is something like, when you were still in your mother's womb, right? Like God knitted you together. God formed you. Jeremiah, it's very specific to him. Like, Jeremiah, I formed you, shaped you, had a call for your life. You were going to be a prophet, right? But if that's the case, then many Christians say, well, life starts at conception. The soul enters the picture of conception. That's it. At that moment, you've got to protect it. Like, the fetus has the same moral standing as a five-year-old, as a 40-year-old, right? And, and, and in that case, then there's, like, moral clarity. God knit us together in the womb, God has an intention and a plan. It, it shouldn't be thwarted. But here's part of the issue with Scripture. It's never as clear as we want it to be. It's never as black and white as we want it to be. Because if you just flip like a few books over, we get to the book of Numbers, and uh, abortion in cases of adultery is sanctioned. So we'll read out of Numbers chapter 5. Uh, the context here is a husband uh, suspects his wife of committing adultery. And what's supposed to happen at that point in uh, the Hebrew nation, right? The priest will make her swear a solemn pledge, saying to the woman, if no man has slept with you, and if you haven't had an affair becoming defiled while married to your husband, then be immune from the water of bitterness that brings these curses. But if you have had an affair while married to your husband, if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest must make the woman utter the curse and say to the woman, May the Lord make you a curse and a harmful pledge among your people when the Lord induces a miscarriage and your womb discharges. And may the water that brings these curses enter your stomach and make your womb discharge and make you miscarry. That's interesting. It seems horrific. So apparently there are, there's an exception even in the Bible. It's okay if, it's the, if, the, if the fetus is the product of adultery. But that's strange if, in fact, the fetus is a full human person with a soul. I mean, we wouldn't say, oh, that five-year-old was the product of adultery. We need to get rid of that five-year-old. We wouldn't kill the five-year-old, right? So, so what, it seems like the Bible's making a distinction here between a born child and a fetus. And if there's an exception here, what about other kinds of things? Like, what about if the baby was the product of premarital sex? or assault, or, or, or. Even in Scripture, it's complicated, really complicated. But Scripture does seem to make a distinction between miscarrying a fetus and killing a child. They don't seem to be equal morally, and I tend to agree with that, right? Like, the fetus matters. It's important. But it's not the same as Nina. There's a distinction, a difference there. When a, when a woman miscarries, that is horrible. That is awful. 
Is it the same as losing Emerson? So if there's a distinction to be made, if there's a difference there, then we have to take that into account. Like this complexity, the messiness of life has to take account. And I don't know how a universal abortion ban takes any complexity into account. How it does anything except uh, impose a particular religious worldview onto all women, regardless of situation or circumstance. This makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And I wouldn't want any other religious worldview to be imposed on my wife or my child that way. So I'm, gonna, I'm making a distinction between my Christian moral view and what I feel comfortable with existing within the law. So let me, let me start to conclude this way. After everything I've said, I still want to reiterate that those of you who have actual experience with this, personally or with people you care about and love, no matter what decision you or your loved one, your friend made, you're a child of God, welcomed here, and there's no judgment on you. I can't imagine ever being in your situation or the people you care about. I can't imagine it. No judgment. The call for us now, though, I think, as the church, is to figure out what does it mean in the midst of our current situation and world, what does it mean to be the church? So I'm going to give you some options about what that looks like. One option, many of you are fired up. I know my wife right now is really scared about the trajectory of women's rights in the country. Right, like She feels a deep existential anxiety. There is a group of faith leaders, in fact, meeting tomorrow uh, at um, the courthouse because the Department of Justice, who's suing Idaho over the abortion ban, they're hearing arguments tomorrow. So people are going down there to like be supportive. If you want more information, let me know. Right, That's, that's one way you say, I want to live this out. Another way might be figuring out how to care for pregnant women. It might be adoption or fostering or saying, what does it look like to love every child? Mm. Right? That's, that's the Christian's pro-life response. How do we love every child such that none are unwanted ever? Right? How do we engage the foster care system or Taft Elementary? Right? What, for me, this is not an issue. This is about how does the church respond to the world as we find it? For some churches, it means gathering resources for women and providing transportation to other states. This is happening, right? What does it look like for Collister to engage our community and our world? And that's going to be driven largely by all of you. What is your heart and what is your passion and how are we going to do that? My prayer is that you would be thoughtful, be prayerful, right? And that we figure out how do we express God's love in a world that desperately needs it? Let's pray.